topics of discussion this time, the Heartland model and letters of a Mormon apostate to his son. Next on Polygamy, what love is this? We're here again to discuss topics that relate to Mormonism and especially Mormon polygamy. And of course, Earl Erskine is co-hosting there. today. And <laughs> we thank you, of course, for coming and My pleasure. sharing with us. My pleasure. Um, we know from what we've done uh, that it takes an act of God and it takes a teachable oh, yeah. heart uh, for anyone <laughs> to turn from b believing a myth to believing God's testimony about himself. And no matter what I say or what we say, about anything, people are going to believe what they want to believe. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and we have no power at all to change their minds. And we approach this topic knowing that that's true. We present the truth of God as He has revealed it, and the, and those on whom it will be effective are those who have ears to hear. But we want to be faithful to present God's personal testimony and apply it to the claims of Mormonism. And if God is true, then the Book of Mormon's not true. Mormonism's not true, and that's the bottom line. <clears throat> now, I am frequently involved in discussions about the reliability and the yeah. authenticity of the Book of Mormon. And during a recent discussion, one lady said that if I needed confirmation to, <laughs> for the truth of the Book of Mormon, I should read the Heartland Model. Mm. And it would prove to me the Book of Mormon is what it claims to be. So I checked out the Heartland Model and in doing so decided this was a good topic for our viewers. Yeah. Now we're not going to do a very comprehensive deep study on this. They can right. do that, but we're just going to kind of cover a few of the points. But um, polygamists, are, <coughs> they believe in the Book of Mormon entirely, Just right? as much as the LDS sure. Church does, yes. Yeah. Okay. And so it's going to be good for both the LDS and the polygamous viewers. Um, and we want to bring uh, to your attention also, which we've done in the past, we'll do it again, that God has told us to check out everything that we're taught to see if it's true. We have the quotes. Yeah, from Acts 17, 11, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And from 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, it says, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Okay, and so there's two, there's yeah. other places too, but there's two main verses that we're supposed to check things out. Uh, the Thessalonians searched the scriptures to see if what Paul taught was true. And then we check everything and see if it's true. Yeah. And there are ways we can check to, to see if the Book of Mormon is true, if the Bible's true. Now in reading the Heartland model and then reading how others have responded to it, we discovered <clears throat> that it is deceiving as the Book of Mormon is. <laughs> In fact, all the faith-promoting as so-called evidence they claim proves the historical authenticity of the Book of Mormon are merely theories presented as facts, and at the end of the day, there's no evidence to support the Book of Mormon. We have another important scripture to share before we look at the Heartland model, and we share this because we want polygamists and LDS to open their minds and their hearts to God's truth, which must include investigating every single thing we have been taught. Yes, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, nine, verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception, for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure 
in unrighteousness. So those who cling to the to the false claims of a false religion, they are believing in a strong delusion. Yeah. And that's what the Book of Mormon is, and that's what Mormonism is. Yeah. Now, the Harlan model was contrived by Rondi Meldrum, um, who claims that personal revelation for this information, and he taxes his own LDS members and scholars that don't agree with him. <laughs> so let's find out if the Heartland model supports the Book of Mormon as being a factual, genuine historical account. We go to the mormonthink.com website and mrm.org for quotes, as well as the Book of Mormon archaeological forum. The links are on the screen for these websites, which you can go and check them out for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Now well, it's very interesting. <clears throat> it is. Yeah. yeah, it is. The the Heartland model actually it should be called a theory uh, of Book of Mormon geography. It claims that the Book of Mormon events took place in the heartland of North America. Yeah. For those who may be unfamiliar with this particular ap apologetic effort to support the Book of Mormon, we quote from Wikipedia. Among the model's proposals are that mound builders, including the Hopewell and the Adena, were among those peoples described in accounts of events in the Book of Mormon books, such as Alma and Helaman. The Mississippi River is identified as the River Sidon and Big Spring in Carter County, Missouri, as the Waters of Mormon. The Niagara Falls region has been described as the narrow neck of land mentioned in Alma. In addition, the Appalachian region of Tennessee is claimed by some to be the land of Nephi. In this model, the Hill Camorra is located in upstate New York. It is the same hill referenced in the Book of Mormon as the location of the destruction of both the Jaredite and Nephite peoples, and the same hill in which the prophet Mormon hides the sacred records and from which his resurrected son Moroni delivers the records to the prophet Joseph Smith in 1827. In 2016, this theory, which challenges the traditional paradigm of Central America as a primary location for Book of Mormon geography, was described as a movement among some Latter-day Saints. Proponents see this new model as a way of better supporting the historical authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Now that Wikipedia did make one mistake here. I think oh, it was that? Moroni that buried the plates, but oh. it says Father Mor Mormon, but I think it oh, was actually yeah, Moroni it was him. that carried the plates That's across true. the West and yeah. dedicated the Manti Temple site and did all that <laughs> on his way to New York. <laughs> and what's interesting about that is that the, all of those people that were supposed to have been killed on um, the Hill Camorra, there's not one piece of evidence there was ever a war there. Not no. one, and if there were that many people, there would be one, one little tiny one item skeleton, at least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or a sword or a sword <laughs> spear or something. Something, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, frankly, none of this really matters when we consider the, that the Book of Mormon doctrine and beliefs are not even taught. When, the, when Mormonism's doctrines don't, are not even taught in the Book of Mormon. Among uh, blatant erroneous claims are that the Mississippi River is the Mormon River Sidon, but the Mississippi River flows south and the Sidon River flows north. Big mistake. I wonder why he didn't catch that when he was bringing together his Heartland model. That's we have more conspicuous errors. <laughs> the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers as the head of the River Sidon does not work because this con confluence is not in an area identified by the Book of Mormon as a narrow strip of wilderness. The Heartland model uses the Ohio River as the geographic feature separating the land of Nephi from the land of Zarahemla, while the Book of Mormon indicates that the separating feature was a narrow strip of wilderness. 
And finally, the Heartland model has the land bountiful southeast of Zarahemla. The Book of Mormon has it northward. Now, see, these are all geogra geographic problems. Little problems. <coughs> that's easily proven. Well. <coughs> also, the Book of Mormon places the sea uh, to the west of Zarahemla and the land of Bountiful, but the Heartland model places it east of Zarahemla and north of Bountiful. Obviously, both cannot be true. The website explains in detail more errors in the Heartland model's explanation of Book of Mormon geography. And geographically, the Heartland model theory doesn't agree with the actual text of the Book of Mormon. He's wrong about his DNA evidence, and even LDS scholars reject most of his claims in the Heartland model. Finally, uh, <clears throat> MormonThink.com summarizes the historical reliability of the Book of Mormon like this. The book's historical claims have not withstood the rigorous scrutiny of the archaeological, biological, historical, and linguistic disciplines and continued study of the history of ancient America. And the continued study of history of ancient America further establishes the implausibility of the claims of the Book of Mormon. Furthermore, for a purportedly pre-Christian text, the book is entirely too Christian. The text repeatedly has main characters quoting New Testament passages and citing details about the story of Christ long before the time of Jesus or the writing of the New Testament which set with such specificity and clarity as to betray knowledge after the fact, knowledge available to Joseph Smith through the King James Bible. As with any religious text, the Book of Mormon can be accepted as the founding document of the faith that face that espouse it, but neither its claims nor the claims of its proponents should be taken at literal face value given the existing understanding of ancient American history. It is at best religious fiction and at worst a fraud. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> That's telling it like, like it, it really is. is. <laughs> Presenting the evidence. Yeah. Uh, the Book of Mormon claims to be another testament of Jesus and that it along with the Bible contains the fullness of the gospel. But after testing its historical reliability, we find it is actually a testament of another Jesus <laughs> and of another gospel. And if, as they claim, the Bible holds the fullness of the gospel, who needs the Book of Mormon? How can you add what to a, fullness? What a good... <laughs> the Book of Mormon condemns polygamy and forbids it. So why did Joseph Smith later claim that God reinstated polygamy and that it was actually necessary for eternal life and eternal lives. Eternal lives means eternal sex, not at all a biblical concept. The Heartland model is deceptive and sadly leads lost souls into deeper lostness, <laughs> if that's a word. <laughs> Lossless. Like I said, you, you can go in and check this out for yourself. We, we just covered it briefly. We didn't go into the deep right. details of it, uh, which is something that I think our viewers who are interested should do. Yeah, Check it should. out and learn it. Yeah. So we're going to go into the discussion of a book. It's a book that I've had for a long time. Actually, it's a little booklet. And it's entitled, The Letters of an Apostate Mormon to His Son. And you don't even know where you got it. I don't it. even know where I got it. <laughs> it was just there amongst all my other books. So no doubt someone gave it to me, you know, considering what I do and, yeah. and thought maybe I'd be interested in reading it. And it was interesting and to read about a life in Mormonism in the early 1900s, which is when it was written. The author's name is Hans P. Uh, Fries, and it's a self-published work. There are plenty of footnotes and references to back up much of what he wrote for the reader to check it out. 
Of course, his experiences are his own, but he also writes about others' experiences in early Mormon polygamy and cannot be considered faith-promoting on behalf of the Mormon church or the Mormon faith. So we will quote from selected portions of this little book and encourage our viewers to check things out for themselves. His letters are dated 1906 and 1907. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, it is. And the Mormon church was still steeped in polygamy despite their claims that they gave it up in 1890. But for decades before 1904, polygamy has been taught as an eternal doctrine not to be rejected. Um, I think we missed a... No, that's right. No. And suddenly the Mormons had to start thinking uh, opposite of how they've been indoctrinated. You think all your life you've learned something. And then in 1890 or 1904, whichever date they want to choose, all of a sudden you had to think differently. Well, this struck me as to the reason that the break-offs were so many from the church, because here they, for so many years, they had been told polygamy was the only way to heaven, mm -hmm. to please God. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden the church was succumbing to the government. And they'd I kick guess. you out if you lived it. <laughs> and so now you kick you out. And I can imagine the turmoil that must have been. We're, we're seeing a little of that turmoil now with the LGBTQ going on at the, the Mormon church, church and, yeah. and some of the other stands that the church has made. And those are just minor compared to this life, this would have been lifelong big. Uh, practice of polygamy. Yeah. So that must have been tough on the members. For yeah, sure. it is. You can't, you, you know, it's contradictory doctrine and your mind can't wrap around it that quickly yeah. and that easily. Um, anyway, on page 11, he tells the story of a young woman in England. Now, they proselyted in England sure. a lot in those yeah. early days, or Europe, all of Europe actually, Scandinavian countries and so on. But she was hoodwinked in going to America uh, with a Mormon elder. Um, he promised her there wasn't polygamy. That happened a lot in those days. But when they arrived in Utah, he sealed her to himself in the temple without her knowing what he was doing. We quote, <laughs> Brother Smith said to me in parting, tomorrow I, we will go through the temple. I could not imagine what it meant for what, for what for, I asked. You will understand by and by was the answer. Brother Smith paid money to the doorkeeper and later purchased several bottles of oil and we spent the entire day in the temple. The whole performance seemed very silly to me. They seemed to seal me to Brother Smith. When it was over, he told me that I was his latest wife. I was astonished and could not understand it. He told me that the Mormons did practice polygamy and explained in detail how it was all for the glory of God. I tried to go away from him, but he would not let me. He said that I had been married to him in the temple that day, and the sooner I made up my mind to it, the better it would be for me. I cannot go on with the story of the bitter days that followed, nor talk of the troubles that I went through. So that, you know, is That's a deception at its highest, isn't it? Yeah. And he goes on to explain the horrible life that this man forced upon his plural wives. Mm -hmm. He was deceptive while in England, denying that they were polygamous, then deceptive in bringing her to the Mormon temple to be sealed to him, then placed her in subservience with no way out. Wow. On page 13 is an interesting and sad footnote. It was quite the custom for returning Mormon elders to bring their new wives into the homes of other wives, the other wife or wives. Then there began a struggle between the wives for supremacy. Sometimes the older wife would win, but more often the younger and handsomer wife would become the favorite. 
But no matter which wife was called the favorite, it was a heartbreaking life for all of them. And that's true today. It's no different today. Polygamy is the same painful, bitter experience for the wife and wives. When they bring in new, bring in a new fresh blood, a young uh, wife. Yeah, and they get younger and younger as the man gets (laughs) older and takes more wives. The wives necessarily have to be younger. Uh, Now, that was written in 1906, Mm. and in today's Mormon polygamy groups, polygamous marriages, like I said, haven't changed much in, what, over 120 years, 115 years? The author tells us about how he became a Mormon. Uh, Mormon missionaries showed up in their community in Denmark when he was a young boy. Because they were mocked by some of these people, he befriended them. And they proceeded to fill his mind with their unique ideas of God and of their Mormonism. He said this. Among other things, they taught us that we should someday be like unto gods. And if we would accept their faith, we would soon be able to perform miracles. Wow, what a promise, huh? Mm -hmm. They secretly began baptizing a few of their converts, and that upset the villagers. And so they hurried after that to return to America, and then he tells about life with the Mormon elders on the ship. (laughs) It's amusing. On board the ship, we were under the command of certain priests of the Melchizedek order. We believed that they would perform miracles. One day, a storm came, and the waves threatened to sink the ship. I was sure that the elders would still the sea, but they huddled together, frightened like the rest of us. But surely they would raise the dead. No, they were thrown into the sea, said one priest. You have no need of the Bible. I'm your Bible. From me cometh the living words of God. <laughs> so they were human never so a little, all of a sudden, huh? Little, yeah, comment. Huh? <laughs> he and his family were among the many who suffered the long trek to Utah over the plains with little food, mm-hmm. pushing the hand carts. After he got to America, they were transported to Omaha, and there they prepared to leave for Utah as soon as the weather permitted. And he said this about the hand carts, which I think is a very insightful yeah. comment he makes. We had been instructed to build small hand carts after a special design given to Brigham Young by God. We were assigned two men to a cart, and a very nice young man was my partner. The first day's journey was delightful, but before long, the wheels broke off. It seems strange that these carts, especially designed by the Almighty and warranted by Him to stand the journey, should wear out so soon. Yet it did not occur to us that we might possibly be duped. (laughs) (laughs) After the fact, he realized it. Yeah. And that's what these letters are all about, to his son, how he'd been duped. We've done segments in the past about the Mormon handcart disaster, so we won't go over it, the details again. But his account of his own personal experience merely confirms the horrendous <laughs> journey that they were forced to take. There was death and sickness and broken down handcarts, starvation, total fatigue, loss of life, loss of food, and hope. Some of them survived, but too many of them died. It didn't need to die, needlessly. And all of that misery and death could have been avoided. He writes further about this. You asked me to write you in detail about our journey across the plains from Council Bluffs to Utah. Words cannot be found in the English language to depict those horrible days. It is a story so pathetic, so dramatic, and so unreal that to tell of their sufferings and their horrible retaliation for wrongs inflicted upon them calls to mind the crimes of religious fanatics far back in the earlier centuries. Ooh, 
that's putting them in kind of an odd category, no words, isn't it? No words for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> On page, now he lived through it, you know, he was yeah, there, we yeah, weren't. We, we read what he said. On page 36 begins his conversation on polygamy and early Mormonism. Now, the letter was written in June of 1907, and polygamy was still the normal mode in Mormon Utah communities. LDS apologists won't admit it, but the polygamists know it's true, and of course, historical accounts and personal journeys, journals confirm that polygamy was not done away with in 1890, as Mormonism claims. Now, he tells of when polygamy was first announced publicly, first announced publicly, uh, and before that it had been practiced secretly and never admitted. But they were now in Utah, it was their territory, yeah. and they thought they could, it was their so-called Zion, it belonged to them, so they could do whatever they wanted, despite what the law prohibited. He says, a rush was made for desirable wives. Old men married girls, trading their young daughters to one another. It was the crowning joy of a great privilege for the true believers. The duty and importance of polygamy was presented Sunday after Sunday. I can just imagine. Mm -hmm. It was the main theme of discourse. Hundreds of girls, 13 and 14 years of age, were either persuaded or forced into it. Girls not yet in their teens were sealed to old reprobates with an agreement they should wait until the children should be old enough to act as wives. Guess we know what that means. Mm -hmm. One man married a woman, her daughter, and her her mother, three generations. Some men even took their own daughters as spiritual wives, so many marriages resulted in much divorce. Consequently, many women were married and remarried again and again to different men. Girls were married and divorced many times, thus going the rounds of the priests. Now this kind of sounds like, how can that be true? Yeah. But you know, we read Fanny Stenhouse's Tell It All yeah, and Annalisa Young's wife yeah. number, and they've told the same stories. Yeah. And so, you know, how, and they didn't confab with each other, you know, <laughs> I don't think, how could they? But um, he, he says that during that time, demoralization set in, conversations became golder, gul, vulgar. Yeah. Heber C. Kimball referred to his wives as my cows. Of course, that fact is well known to those who are familiar with the history of Mormon polygamy. A few lines later in this letter, he said, quote, The Mormon church still holds to the polygamy revelation as a divine command. They have no intention of giving it up. Now, this is 1907. Yeah. Seventeen years after Wilford Woodruff's manifesto, which supposedly relieved them of the polygamy practice. But of course it didn't. History shows it didn't. Yeah. He gives some very sad example, examples of the treatment of polygamists to their plural wives, and they were sad and cruel, ungodly men who found a religiously authorized method of committing adultery. They were even shamed into it for those who didn't want to do it. He retells the story of one of Orson Pratt's wives whom he neglected and she and her children eventually starved to death and we talked about that on the previous show yeah. too. He tells the story of another polygamist who went on a mission and came home with a new wife. She was just in her teens. He proceeded to mistreat his wives and one day while they were at the river with his second wife, she. <laughs> She pushed him into the deep water. I guess she wanted to get rid of him. He managed to survive, but when he decided to retreat to his third wife home, she threw rocks at him through the window and let him in. We quote. The poor young and inexperienced girl was overcome with fright. 
She had been taught by the Mormon missionaries that Zion was a land of love, peace, and plenty. It was a sad awakening for her. Although she had just become a mother, she decided quickly, and that night went out from that roof, never to return. She was one of the lucky ones that managed to escape. To get out. Um, There's more, of course, in, in this little book, and we're out of time to go further, but next time we're going to continue talking about some of these letters that he wrote about Mormon polygamy in early Utah. And in the meantime, remember what Jesus said, that a bad root cannot produce good fruit. Eventually, he's going to cut down the tree with mm-hmm. a bad root. That's yeah. in the Bible. <laughs> and also, the, what's how the parable Jesus told that um, the house built on the sand or the house built on the rock. One will fall, the other one will remain. And polygamy is certainly the sand. It is not the rock. And so we will continue with this little booklet next time. Sounds fun. That's very fascinating. (laughs) It's fascinating to read what these experiences were. Especially right around that time when Polygamy was supposed to be ending in the yeah, church. Yeah, supposed to have ended. Have ended, and yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Through the years, we have presented arguments that the Book of Mormon is not an inspired book. Many others who also love the Mormon people have done probably better and deeper uh, presentations than we've done. But no one can convince anyone of anything if they don't have ears to hear. We know the Mormon and polygamous cultures because we were there. We were also indoctrinated with Mormonism, Earl with the LDS Church, me with the polygamy group. Uh, We were indoctrinated with the Jesus who is Satan's brother and with the God who was once a man or a human like us. We don't know what we don't know. And that's the problem with Mormon doctrine and those who refuse to open up their minds to check out the reliability of the Bible, the truthfulness of Jesus and and the faithfulness of God Almighty. And is all shown in the Bible in lives of people who trust him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He also said, they will not come to the light because their deeds are evil. Jesus said, they will not come. That's a personal rejection of the testimony that God has given us about Jesus. We urge you, turn from Mormonism and open up your hearts to biblical truths and you will be surprised what God will do in your life. Thank you for watching. This has been the audio podcast of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. Polygamy, What Love Is This? is produced by A Shield and Refuge Ministry. More information on this program, including the video version of it, can be found at whatloveisthis.tv. If you have any questions or need help getting free from Mormon fundamentalism, write us at contact at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 1-800-877-425-9993.